a lot of you are thinking, how much did I pay Bruce for those kind words? But here's the truth. Bruce loves Bethany because Christ has preached here. Bruce loves Bethany because he has found a church home for he and his family where his faith is stretched and he is encouraged to be a part of a place that he can call home. Bruce's story, I think for the majority of us, is our story. We don't have a a radical transformation. God didn't come into our life when we were addicted to drugs, maybe, and uh, he set us free from our drug addiction. No, probably for the most of us in this room, we had come to belief and then from belief stepped in the waters of baptism and declared our soul for Christ, and then we did our best to surrender to him. And while our faith consists of a lot of faithfulness and maybe sometimes of unfaithfulness, I think the faithfulness side of things probably enormously outweighs the times that you've been unfaithful. But maybe like Bruce, you had found yourself in a place where you were at another church or a part of a denomination and where you didn't really leave the church, but you felt like you felt like the church was leaving you. Maybe that particular denomination found itself to have more of a liberal stance on their preaching. As culture changed, so did their communication about Christ. It changed too. And so they begin to cloud the verses of Scripture with what fit best within society. Maybe you've been a part of a place where you didn't feel at home and then you walked into this place and for the first time you felt that you belonged and you had a sense of family here and you're grateful for all of those things. But I bet most of us have a story like Bruce. We believed, we were baptized, we've been faithful, there's been some times of unfaithfulness, we've sat through thousands of worship services, thousands of hours of sermons, but each Sunday morning never seems to be trite to us. We love what God has to say, and we're eager to take in the words that are being preached and the fellowship amongst the believers. And Christ and His church and this congregation and the many ministries that we all offer together in the name of Jesus Christ, they must mean something to you. Otherwise, you wouldn't be here. And I know that there are immeasurably more Imagine more people that are just like you, just like Bruce, just like me, that have fallen in love with Jesus Christ, have come to this place at the table to be fed like you have, and want to share that with others in our community. Imagine more people that are looking for a church home where they feel comfortable and a place to belong, a place where they can work out their faith and, and be stretched in it and encouraged, a place where they feel like the people that are around them love the Lord and are genuine and authentic, and the leadership, though they might have some struggles along the journey, are are authentic leaders and are desiring to work out their faith in fear and trembling. A church that is dedicated to the scriptures more than they are more than they are just being representation of a, of a culture that surrounds them. And letting men hear the words of Christ rather than maybe some kind of short discussion on how you could be a better person. And that means something to you. Like it means something to Bruce. And you want to be able to be grateful for those things and share in those things. But you especially want more people to have what you have because that's the generosity of Christianity. We want others to experience what we've experienced. See, If you're visiting with us, I'm so thankful that you're here this morning. And we're having a family conversation for the next three or four weeks. And I want you to be able just to sit in our living room and be a fly on the wall for a while. 
At my household, every now and then when there are big decisions to be made or something big is going on in our house, we round up all the kids, put them in the living room. We kind of talk to them the best way we can. I mean, you know, with an eight-year-old and seven-year-olds, it's hard to do, but we try to have the best family discussions we can. And this is kind of our family discussion. And as mature adults and some maturing Christians in here, I want us to pay special attention to what's being said. This is a crucial moment in our church's history, and we have the great opportunity to have some mighty impact amongst others in our community if we surrender our heart to Jesus Christ. Do you know the Bible talks about our motives for giving? And within those motives, it talks about our heart, that our heart becomes a part of our motive for giving. The Bible weighs out about six different motives for giving. Four are biblical, two aren't. And maybe as I discuss these rather quickly, you can find out where your giving is in this place because the conclusion I want us to all come to this morning is that our heart is properly motivated as we make commitments or pledge things over the next three years so that immeasurably more than we asked or imagined can experience Jesus Christ as you experience him here. The first heart that is discussed within the Bible is the one that gives with a guilty heart. This person's full of guilt. They're so full of guilt that when they hear about a need, it just wrenches their heart and they want to give to it because they want the guilt off of their back. Nothing more but that. They just want the guilt off of their back. But this is not a biblical motivation. And if you are desiring to give out a guilt because you just feel the heavy burden of it, don't give with guilt. Wrong reasons. As a matter of fact, the Apostle Paul goes on to say in 2 Corinthians, don't give reluctantly or in response to pressure. Don't let that be your motivation for guilt. So if your heart is guilty, don't give. Here's the second motivation, the motivation of a dutiful heart. That means this is the person that gives out a sense of responsibility. The person that says, well, someone's got to give around here. I mean, after all, the lights have to stay on. The place has to be heated or cooled, cooled mostly, but heated also. This place has to have its maintenance things taken care of. Someone's got to give. And they look at their They're giving as a sense of duty, as a sense of responsibility, as a sense of obligation. Friends, that's not even a biblical motive, to give out of a sense of duty or obligation. And if that is your desire to give to this immeasurably more campaign so that others might find a place at this table, don't give. Don't give, because it's not a good biblical motivation. But now we get into some biblical motivations of the heart. And one of those motivations is that you have a grateful heart. This person gives because they're grateful to God. They're grateful for the congregation. They're grateful for the ministry work that's being done. Maybe they're grateful for a mission work that they've been a part of, but they're just grateful for what God is doing in their life. And out of their gratefulness, they just want to give back just something of a portion of what they are so thankful for in their life. That's a pretty good reason to be, great, to be grateful and to give. And I'd say a lot of you in this room, you give with that motivation. It's a biblical motivation. You're grateful for what God's done in you. You're grateful for the ministries of the church. You're grateful for what this congregation represents in your life. And you, out of your gratefulness, you give because you're thankful. There's a fourth motivation of our heart in giving, and that's a cheerful heart. There's others of you that love to give. It's your nature to give. You love to see the smile on someone's face when you hand them a gift. You love to see how your giving can change circumstances in people's lives. And so you give to somebody and you say, I just love that. And you guys have this moment around the table, your husband and wife, and you sit there and you say, wasn't that great how their face lit up when we gave them that money? Boy, I know it changed them. I know it changed their circumstance. And you are just so happy to give. Second Corinthians chapter 9 Verse 7, the Apostle Paul says, this is a good biblical reason to give. God loves a what? A cheerful giver. He loves the one that 
is given with an open heart and open hand and a smile on their face and happy to do it. No skin off my back. Here's the fifth heart. The motivation is to give with a generous heart. That means that you're not just giving to meet the need. The need's presented. You know how much it is that someone needs so that their life can have a change of circumstances. You not just give to that need. You go above and beyond that need as well. You hear about the need and you say, I've met the need and I want to go further than that need. I want to go above and beyond the presented need. This heart is a good motivation, a biblical motivation for giving. Let me tell you why generosity, the the generous heart, is such a good heart to have in a community culture like church. Because generosity is contagious. If you've ever been given more than you thought you should have or more than you deserved, you know that feeling and you want to do that for other people. And you say, I might have limited resources and I might have limited goods, but I want to be able to make someone feel like I felt because I don't deserve what was given to me and I want to be able to share that blessing with other people. I want to be generous. Generosity here is the idea of my cup runneth over and I want to hand out to other people so that their cup runneth over so that someone else's cup might runneth over. Do you get the idea? And it just keeps pouring into one cup to another cup to another cup to another cup. And so we all say, God's been so generous and we're generous too. Then there is the heart that I want all of us to secure because it's the most worshipful of the hearts. Not that it's more biblical, it's the most worshipful of all the hearts. And that's the surrendered heart. That's the heart that I'm asking us to begin to cultivate today because it's with this heart that we can do the most good as we make our commitments and pledges in the coming weeks. This person has surrendered their life to Christ They're listening to God. They're wrestling what it is that they should do. And they're waiting in expectation. God, lay something on my heart because I want to help with what's being presented before me. And a surrendered heart gives God the glory. They're not doing it for themselves. They're not doing it just because they they like to see the smile on other peaceful faces. They're not doing it because they've experienced generosity and they want to be generous back. They're doing it because, because they're surrendered. Their heart, their soul, their mind, and their strength is already the Lord's. And they're saying, if that's already the Lord's, my wallet is already yours too. And God, I'll do whatever you're calling me to do. If you want me to move to Zimbabwe and be a missionary, I'll be a missionary in Zimbabwe. Now, it's going to take an awful lot of convincing on God's part for me to go to Zimbabwe. And the surrender heart says, I'll wrestle with that though. I'll wrestle with it. And if that's your leading, ultimately I'll go. This is a biblical motivation that's right. It's a biblical motivation of surrender, of a way to say to God, God, not my will, but yours be done. I want to do everything you're calling upon me to do and nothing less than that. So let me walk through four stories out of the Bible, all found in the New Testament. And maybe you can find yourself in one of these stories about where your heart's at. No flowery illustrations today, no poems, no points, just stories. And maybe God's word will speak directly to your heart so that, so that it will begin to prepare in you a surrendered heart as we move forward as a congregation together to welcome more in. The first story is found in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 18. It's a story of a young man who's living in luxury. He has everything he wants. The young man has everything he needs, but one thing has become elusive to him eternal life. You see, he can possess everything on on earth, but there's one thing he can't take hold of, and that's salvation. He can't buy that, and he's determined to claim a heavenly inheritance. 
And this guy's got such a crisis on his hands. I don't know if he's in a midlife crisis or what, but he comes to Jesus and he is just eaten up about what's tormenting him. He wants salvation, not just possessions. So in Luke 18, verse 18, the story unfolds. A certain ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus responds, Why do you call me good? No one's good except God alone. You know the commandments? You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. All these I've kept since I was a boy, he said. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, You still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor. You don't have treasures in heaven. And then, then follow me. When he heard this, he was very sad because he was very rich. You know what Jesus does? He recognizes the heart instantly. This is a superpower of Jesus. I mean, he cuts right to the chase. He understands what's holding us back from him. And he looks right at this young man. He says, here's what's holding you back from me. Your wealth is holding you back from me. Now, this is probably not your situation in many cases. This was this young man's situation. His wealth was holding him back. Maybe for your situation, your job might be holding you back from a surrendered heart to Jesus Christ. Maybe it's a sin in your life that's holding you back from Jesus Christ. It could be an addiction in your life that's holding you back from Jesus Christ. Jesus would say to you, get rid of that addiction and come follow me. Get rid of that job and come follow me. Get rid of these people in your life. You come follow me. For this guy, he was filthy rich and he trusted in his riches. Friends, please don't misinterpret this story like some Bible teachers are doing in our day and age. They're misinterpreting the story as if to say that you shouldn't have any money. We all should live in poverty and there should be wealth distribution amongst the world. If that were the case then anybody who has would no longer have, and then that means that nobody would have, so nobody would have anything, wouldn't it? we just have nothing. Everybody would be impoverished. And that's not what the story is calling us to. This story is looking at the heart of this man and saying he hasn't surrendered himself. Now let me ask you this question. Let me ask you this question. What kind of heart is Jesus calling this guy to have? A guilty heart? A dutiful heart? A grateful heart, a generous heart, a cheerful heart? Or is he calling him to have a surrendered heart? Well, I think if you get in the text, there's no mistake about it. He's calling this man to have a surrendered heart. Sell everything you have. Surrender it. Because that's holding you back from me. And once you have surrendered your heart to me, you're not going to have to have any other of these concerns that weigh on your heart anymore. You're going to be surrendered, you see. So this man's being asked to give the most sacrificial, challenging gift he's ever been able to to give. Some of you, me included, have no idea what this would be like. Give up the millions, hundreds of millions you've been working so hard to collect and hand it over because that's holding you back. I don't know if I'd be willing to do that. Everything I've worked for, everything that I have possessed, that's a challenge. Take my heart, let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Take my might, 
Take my gold, not a mite do I withhold. Jesus recognizes the heart. As he recognizes the heart, the man puts up a front and he gets very sad and he he recognizes this is going to be a major challenge for me to surrender to Jesus. There's a second story about two believers named Ananiah and Sapphira. Their story is found in Acts chapter 5. They're a husband and wife, and they had pledged to the church all the proceeds off of the sale of some property that they had owned. But when the deal was done, Ananias and Sapphira, when they had cash in hand, they second-guessed their spoken pledge and their commitment. They second-guessed. I guess maybe the property sold for more than they anticipated it to sell for. They had no idea that their investment in that property was going to come back with so much of a return. And now that they have the actual cash in hand, they're double-thinking their commitment that they had audibly made to the church. So they hold back some of the money for themselves. That, my friends, wasn't the sin. Holding back money for yourself. Part of the story that becomes the saddest is that they lie about how much the property sold for. Acts chapter 5, look at the verse 4 about the second way through. The apostle Peter confronts this couple about their dishonesty and he too cuts right to the heart and he says, what made you think about doing such a thing? You have not just lied to human beings, you lied to whom? To God. You lied to God. That's the sin here. Not that they held some money back for themselves. That wasn't the sin. The sin was they had made this lofty, probably boastful, definitely audible pledge. And I'm sure that that early church said, oh, did you hear what the Smiths are going to do? They're going to sell all their property and they're going to give it over to the church. And the church began writing checks ahead of time saying, wow, we can count on this. There's some people that really need some food and we can go get them some food based on this and, and, and we can be able then to, to help people out amongst our community. And then the next thing we see is a bit of judgment in verse 5. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and he died in great fear, seized all who heard what had happened. The plot thickens in Acts chapter 5 because Sapphira, just like a soap opera, walks right into the room and her husband's body has been covered. She doesn't know it's her husband. The men are dragging the body out and Sapphira then is confronted. Hey, Sapphira, how much money did you get for that piece of property that you had pledged to this church in Jerusalem? She lies about it. So there must have been a conspiracy amongst the two. Hey, if the apostles ask, let's not tell them how much we really got. Let's hold it back. And she dies too amongst the people. Now, this freaks the entire church out. Now, don't you think it would freak the entire church out? I mean, somebody says, I'm going to pledge this amount, and then we find out they didn't pledge that amount, and then they die instantaneously. You know what I'd be doing? Here, here's my pledge plus, right? We're not going to make sure. But don't let that scare you. This was a stern warning for the early church to show that there is power behind what the apostles had to say. I am no apostle. And Ananias and Sapphira were more than likely boasting that they had a surrendered heart. I hope this makes sense for you. They were probably boasting their hearts were surrendered to God. But when push came to shove and a commitment time came, it discovered that their hearts really weren't surrendered to God, that maybe they were just giving out of a guilty heart or a dutiful heart, or maybe even worse, a greedy heart. They wanted to hold it back. Now, there are so many morals to this story. There are so many morals to this story that you can go, but let me grab this moral to this story. 
Their mouth wrote a check their heart was unwilling to cash. Their mouth wrote a check that their heart was unwilling to cash. Meaning, they thought in their hearts they could do something huge for God, but their heart wasn't completely surrendered, so it didn't make sense. I bet you, Ananias, I don't know their table discussions, but I bet you they never wrestled with God in prayer and asked God, God, what do you want to do through me? What do you want to do through me? What do you want to do? They probably never prayed that prayer. And so they came up with a number off the top of their head, a number that was too big for them to even put into the offering, and and they were unable to commit. Let me share how this relates to you and I and what's going to happen in a couple weeks. On October the 26th is a special time called our Commitment Sunday. We'll have commitment cards that we'll hand out next week. We'll ask you to go and continue in prayer. God, what do you want me to do? What do you want to do through me in this? And if God calls you to be a part of this, to participate in this act of giving over the next three years, we want you to come to a conclusion with a surrendered heart of whatever that is and lay it before the congregation. Now, no one, no one, no one, no one, no one is ever going to hold you to that pledge card. No one's going to call you up and say, hey, uh, Mr. and Mrs. Smith, you didn't make the amount this year. Uh, You've got to pay up. Not going to happen because no one ever beyond that is ever going to know. You're making a commitment as a family with you and God. That's it. That's it. But let me, let me just say as a warning through Ananias and Sapphira. If you do this with a guilty heart, or if you do this with a dutiful heart, it's not going to happen for you over three years. It's going to fall apart somewhere. Let me even be this bold with it. If you just give out of a grateful heart over the next three years, or a cheerful heart, or a generous heart, I will guarantee you that it will not continue for the next three years. I guarantee it. Generosity only lasts for so long. Cheerfulness comes and it goes sometimes. Gratefulness, well, if the sermon's good, we might be grateful. But if the sermon's bad, which is more than likely, we're not going to be grateful. But in a heart of surrender, a heart of surrender says, I wrestled with God. He laid it on my heart what I should give. And out of a surrendered heart, that's what I have pledged to. Not something so big that it's unrealistic. Something right on target that matches your heart, matches your life, matches what you can sacrifice. Here's the third story found in Luke chapter 19. It's the story of a small man that became big. Zacchaeus climbed a tree to get a better view of Jesus, but he had no idea that day that he was going to have a lunch date with the king of kings and And Zacchaeus' house wasn't even cleaned up for him to welcome in the preacher. Zacchaeus is the local scoundrel. I mean, he has a reputation that precedes himself. He is corrupt. He's greedy. He's selfish. The whole community knows him. They know his antics, and they despise him. Partially the reason why he got into the tree was not just because he was short. It was probably because, too, the crowd nudged him away, saying, no way are you going to take part in this parade. He's a tax collector. He was hated more than our tax collectors are in the United States. Because in his day, he had an appetite for money, an unquenchable appetite to collect more money than what was required of him to collect, but lawful for him to collect. So Zacchaeus was building up the empire of Rome with taxes, but he was also building up the empire of Zacchaeus. 
And more than likely, this guy had a lavish home on a hill and his servants and his expensive clothes and all of his supplies came from the taking of money from his neighbors. And this guy's living in luxury while his neighbors are struggling to survive. Can you imagine how despised this guy is? Zacchaeus' life, though, was completely changed when he had encountered Jesus. And this small man of integrity and of stature was transformed to do some big-time things with his generosity and his gratefulness. Because after he came to recognize his sins over a sandwich with Jesus, he turns around and says, God, I'm going to do some big things for you. Not because I'm just grateful, not because I'm generous, because I'm not generous. I take from people because I've surrendered my heart to you. And I want to show everybody in my community that thinks I'm a scoundrel and no good. I want to show them that I really have surrendered my life to you. I want, I want there to be some fruit in my surrender. And so to prove his transformation, here's what he decides to do. Not under compulsion. He decides it in his heart. Luke 19, verse 8. Zacchaeus stood up and he said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now, like immediately, not next month, here and now, I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I cheated anybody out of anything, I'll pay them back four times as much. You're saying, well, that's no big deal because, I mean, the guy's super filthy rich. He's got enough to spare. But let me tell you about the possessional part of this story. More than likely, these possessions came from people that didn't have enough money to pay taxes. He came to your door place and you'd say, wait, money's tight right now. My husband lost his job. We don't have any money to give. We're paycheck to paycheck around here. He'd say, I don't care. I want my money. They'd say, we don't have any money. He'd look through the crack of your door and say, that's a pretty nice TV you got there. I'll take the TV. Or that's a, that's a pretty nice set of crystal dish, uh, cups you got there. I'll take the crystal cups. And see, his possessions were actually other people's possessions. You know, speculated that when Zacchaeus would go door to door, traditionally, the tax collectors of Rome would take two to three times more than they were supposed to. What's Zacchaeus resolve in his heart to give? Four times more. Now, that's not interest payments. He's not saying, guys, I took your money. I was just just borrowing it for a little bit. I was going to pay back interest. You know me. No, he was saying, I want this community to know that I have a surrendered heart here. I've had an encounter with Jesus. My sins have been forgiven. For the first time in my life, I feel worthy and loved because no one gives me love. No one shows me that I have worth. But Jesus, the King of Kings, Lord of Lords, sat down and had a sandwich with me. I feel pretty special. My sins are forgiven. I'm going to surrender to that guy everything that I am. Notice, this is worth noticing, worth noticing. Nowhere in the scripture does Jesus say, would you give this? Would you give that? Zacchaeus, you know, a part of your transformation is that you give. It's not there. You can tell this is a surrendered heart. Why? Because he has the desire to give. He comes up to this with his own conclusion. God laid this on his heart somewhere immediately to say, Zacchaeus, here's what you should be doing right now. A surrendered heart submits to the will of the Father. And I only have to assume, because it's not in Scripture, that God laid this on on Zacchaeus' heart to do. So Jesus doesn't fight it. Jesus doesn't say you're not given enough. Jesus doesn't say you're given too much. Good, Zacchaeus. If this is what you resolved in your heart to do, you're forgiven and you've surrendered. Here's the fourth story. 
Gospel of Mark, chapter 12. It's the story of enormous trust, a story of great surrender, and a story of amazing sacrifice. It begins with Jesus and his disciples. They're watching the crowds put money into the offering at the temple. Uh, That would be a bit disconcerting, wouldn't it? Jesus stands above the offering plate and kind of watches you, and you peel off a couple of $1 bills, and he kind of keeps staring. You peel off a few more dollar bills. He keeps staring. You reach out, and you pull it in a 20, and he kind of gives you the nod like, we're okay now. I doubt that was the outlook. I doubt that's what was taking place. I'm sure Jesus was in a position in the temple, crowds everywhere, thousands of people. He had probably positioned himself, perched himself in a place where he could maybe catch the corner out of his eye, a glimpse of what was going on, but so that other people knew he wasn't watching what was going on. But no doubt, those who showed up rich showed up distinctly looking rich. And those who were poor showed up distinctly looking penniless. And Jesus has taken notice. And he's teaching his disciples. He's teaching his disciples. Remember his disciples. Foxes have holes. But the Son of God has no place to lay his head. His disciples who have nothing. They have, Judas is holding the treasury, but he's probably taking a bit out for himself. The books never seem to add up, but... There never seems enough money to be around. And and Jesus is a pauper living off the land and his disciples are following with him. And here they are and they're watching this taking place and Jesus is having this dialogue. And then Mark 12, verse 41, the second half says, many people threw in, notice what it says, many rich people threw in, what does it say? Large amounts. But a poor widow came and put in very two small copper coins worth only a few cents. And Jesus points her out. Jesus points her out and says, hey, take a look at this widow woman over here. And he addresses her. She says, she lives in poverty. And she was able to be very rich even though she lives in poverty. Now, catch this. Because here's how preachers manipulate things like crazy to get their way. And I don't want to do that with this text. Preachers have done this for years. They've said things like, everybody who's rich should give away so much that they become poor. That's not true. Or they say things like this. Here was another way that this used to be phrased up. They would say, Jesus was pointing out the poor widow to let poor people know that you too should be giving as well. I bet you haven't heard that in a pulpit in a long time. You see, back then, there was no Social Security. You were completely dependent on family. If you didn't have family, you were out of luck with your needs. And this woman has just a couple of pennies, and she's probably down on her luck. And Jesus is saying, check that out. Check this out. And you know what Jesus is doing? Because we don't teach this from the pulpit, but this is the way it needs to be taught. Jesus is celebrating the rich and the poor here. And he's saying the rich gave richly, and the poor gave richly everyone is giving richly everybody is giving out of a desire of their heart 
And I'm sure Jesus is pointing out and saying, look, this widow woman, she has a, a heart of surrender. But that doesn't mean that those rich folks didn't have a heart of surrender either. They were putting in a large amount, the scriptures say. And he's, con- he's not condemning rich. He's commending rich. He's not condemning poor. He's commending poor. He's commending the nature, the motive of their heart, you see. And this is exactly what I'm wanting to convey to you this morning. This very simple practical understanding that when it comes time for commitment of what we're going to do, if we're going to participate, that you recognize it's not about equal gifts. It's about equal sacrifice. The rich gave richly. The poor gave richly. Their hearts surrendered to Christ. Friends, it's going to take the richest of the rich like Zacchaeus and the poorest of the poor like this widow uniting together with a motivated heart of surrender so that Jesus Christ can truly do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to the power that is at work within us so that others might claim the untold riches of God's grace that feel unworthy, that feel unacceptable, that feel like the scoundrels of society so that we can usher them and say, no, that's not true. There's a God that has redeemed us and is loving us and has shown grace to us. And I think all of us like Zacchaeus, I think there's a side of us that have experienced this great encounter with Jesus, this great change of life. And and at bare minimum, we have this grateful attitude to say, God, I want to do something back for you. I'm not sure what that looks like, but I want to do something back. And Zacchaeus stands before God and says, I've got an idea here. God's laid on my heart to do this. What do you think? I don't know what God's going to lay on your heart to do. That's not up to me. That's up to you and God. Not up to the preacher. But I know that what God is requiring us goes so much deeper than finances. It goes right here to soul. And he's called each of us in here who follow after Jesus for our heart, our soul, our mind, and our strength. And friends, that is the very first offering we give to the Lord. You would think that we would work ourselves into this. And God says, no. I want complete surrender first. I don't need you perfect. I don't need your life completed. I don't need, I don't need everything arranged in your life. I just need you to say, God, Would you use me? God, you're mine. God, I need you. I just need you to surrender. That's what I need. And then if we surrender, God's got us exactly where he wants us. In a position where we rely on Jesus for salvation. Not ourselves, not our money like the young man tried to do. In a position where we can finally say, God, I am a willing vessel. Not my will be done, but yours be done. I'm not sure what you want of me, but I'll pray the prayer. God, what do you want to do through me? And once it's laid on my heart, it might become difficult. But since I've surrendered, that's the commitment I'm going to make. Not because I'm grateful. Not because I'm cheerful. Not because I'm generous. But because I've surrendered my life over to you But if you've never turned your heart over to Jesus Christ, let me know that, let me me have you understand something. I want you to know this. 
God doesn't want God doesn't want your dollars as much as he wants your desires. Uh, God doesn't want your checks. He wants your choices. God does not want your lip service. God wants your life. And that is far more important than dollars and cents. And why don't you today, like so many have done in this room already, surrender and commit yourself to Jesus Christ, giving your full heart, soul, mind, and strength to Him. Have yourself put to death so that Christ might live in you, so that His power may be at work in you. Friends, if you haven't given your life to Jesus Christ today, that is the greatest offering you can ever make in this world. And I encourage you to make that offering, which many in this room already have, to accept Christ as Savior and as Lord and have your sins forgiven by His shed blood. Will you stand with me and let's close in prayer this morning.